All right, this is uh, this is getting dangerous. I've, I've I've promised timely starts, and I was a minute late yesterday, and now I'm five minutes late today. So, um, so we have to we'll, we'll have to get to the bottom of, of who's responsible for this, I suppose. As I wear a hot dog suit, uh, I'm Seth Partnow. This is the Colin Shots podcast. I am joined today by uh, my friend Andrew Patton to talk data, uh, data visualization, data communication, and the Philadelphia 76ers. Those topics may or may not have some relation to each other. Uh, Andrew, thanks for coming on. Um, tell the people about yourself and uh, and kind of your relation to the world of basketball and basketball stats. Sure, sounds good. My pleasure in uh, in being here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I would say first and foremost, uh, I started out totally just as a fan. Um, didn't play basketball. Just grew up with the Sixers and the Iverson era, and that hooked me uh, for better for worse. <laughs> Um, and then I got kind of started in the basketball um, analytics space, as it were, in like 2018. I was writing for Liberty Ballers and doing some statistical noodling for them. And really just kind of it made sense to me. I've been a scientist and quantitative person my whole life, and I'm certainly better at that stuff than playing basketball. So that, uh, that made sense to me on that end. And uh, what people primarily know me from these days is my collection of applications. Uh, gravity was the first thing that was people noticed. And then uh, currently probably people know me as the front man for Darko. Um, and in all that, I worked for Stats Perform for about a year doing uh, a lot of their uh, machine learning stuff for drafts and ended up with some Sloan finalist type stuff. But I'm out of the paying basketball space now and back into my original uh, skill set of uh, healthcare and epidemiology. Cool. So um, it's funny. There's a number of people who have kind of an epidemiological background who, uh, who work in, in sort of basketball and basketball uh, adjacent data situations. Um, our mutual friend, uh, Todd Whitehead, um, foremost among them, if you, if you know him, at Crumple Jumper on Twitter, uh, currently works for Synergy and is probably the, would you agree, kind of the most inventive uh, yes. visual, visualizer of of basketball data? That, uh, Hands around? down. I, I like to say he, he's an artist where I am, like his work is like really, really aesthetically beautiful, tells a story, great stuff, where I'm a little more utilitarian. <laughs> um, but, you know, Todd and I have like oddly similar like careers and backgrounds. Um, in fact, a lot of our PhD colleagues are like the same over, overlap. So it's pretty, it's pretty funny. Todd and I share a lot of, uh, a lot of the same background. Just, just, just toss that little, little doctor, Dr. Patton Humblebrag <laughs> in there. Um, so let's, let's, let's start from there. You mentioned like kind of the aesthetic of, of his, of his work. And, and again, if anyone hasn't seen some of Todd's work, uh, perhaps one of my favorite thing that, that I've seen him do was he was trying to, uh, visualize how players, uh, you know, uh, production and, 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 and style of play changes over the years. So he built a giant jello cube and put pins inside to represent each player and then moved them and found a way to move them around to illustrate like how players change their shot selection and, and, and accuracy and, and stuff over time. And that's, that's the kind of mad scientist that he is. Um, yeah, it, it's truly like genius tier stuff. Yeah. No one else does that level of creativity. Execution. Uh, it's right on the level of madman. If we're going <laughs> to be honest, but yeah, let's, but let's, let's bring it back to, to um, hopefully I'm not insulting you by saying the more prosaic, um, but no. what are, what are some of the, you know, 
some of the important things that, you know, even though his, his work stands out with kind of some of that whimsy, there are sort of some fundamentals of data communication that, that are being adhered to. Can you describe some of those and kind of what, what you think is, are, are some of the key things to being effective communicating data? Because frankly, I think in, in the public space, I think the succinct communication of stuff is, is a spot where um, even the, the sort of the best analysts can fall down. Yeah, it's not um, something that is uh, done lightly, and it's not something that is easy to do, um, do right the first time for any means. So with Todd's work, the reason why it's so good is that, first off, it looks gorgeous. If you knew nothing about sports or didn't speak English, you would look at it and say, wow, that looks cool. And that's really important because we're often told in like scientific world that when you go to these big conferences and you have your poster boards up, you've got like five to eight seconds to hook somebody. That's probably half of that on Twitter, considering there's so much available to, to draw your attention. So the first thing is everything he does is eye-catching immediately, grabs you and it makes you want to stick around. And the second thing, which is somewhat counterintuitive, is that his, his work the presentation of very, very complicated ideas sometimes is very simple. His work is like aesthetically very, very, it's gorgeous. Like it looks great, but it's also the, it's simple. It's distilled down to just the things that matter. Um, there's a really, there's a quote from uh, Coco Chanel that I like with regards to <laughs> data visualization. It's essentially every day before you leave the house, look in the mirror and take one thing off and Todd does a great job of that. And I think something I do a pretty good job as well is there's nothing on the image or the chart that doesn't add value to the point that's trying to be made. There's nothing superfluous there, even though his work is like very rich and detailed, there's nothing there that isn't necessary. And would you say, would you agree with me that that's among the most common mistakes we see, at least in visualizing data, like probably the most common mistake we see is like, Oh, here's a chart with, things to nine decimals and that's um but that's sort of the that that's sort of the don't know any better mistake yes Um, there's the lack of yeah for somebody who's actively trying and isn't just you know slapping something up in instantaneously often self-editing is tough and you're a writer you know how a good editor that works with you can really help the clarity of the piece by cutting out you know 500 words of just fluff and the same is true for when you work doing any sort of data communication with images or graphics, like what doesn't need to be there and get rid of it. And it's not to say that you can't have things be complicated or interesting or nuanced because you can. Todd does that. I do that. Another one, Owen Phillips, who both know, does that. But there isn't a lot of like fluff. There's no, there's no stuff that's on the screen or on the image that doesn't need to be there, whether it's literally just access lines or or excess text or the right number of decimal points. It's just, there's a very, there's a clarity to things, which is really, really important because again, you have to hook somebody and then you have to have them understand because if you can't have them understand what you're trying to do within, you know, again, a couple seconds, they're going to bail every time. And it doesn't really matter how great your work was. If no one sticks around to read it. It's I've always in, in, in writing and in, in, in sort of verbal communication of, of, analytics concepts, I, I tend to fall back. I, you know, you have, you have uh, rigorous academic training and I, and I have legal training, which is not the same thing at all. Uh, so, 
but I tend to, I fall back on that. And, and when studying for the bar exam, they, they always teach you to pay attention to the call of the question. And what that means is uh, the bar exam is trying to test your knowledge of certain points of black letter law. Um, they, they kind of tell you what they want you to tell them in the question. So answer that. Don't answer, ev- don't put in everything you know about contract law. You put in ev- like all the key points about this area of contract law that the question is dealing with. And I think, um, now obviously we're not dealing with, you know, like the, f- the formalism of kind of legal briefing or anything like that here. But I think that's, some, that's it, both in written and visual form Keeping that in mind, what's the question I'm answering? How do I get there as quickly and clearly as possible? Absolutely. And I'll say that this is sports agnostic, what I'm saying. Yes. Um, you should strive for clarity in your images and charts, especially if they're going to stand alone. It's one thing if you're writing a paper and figure one has a caption and then there's three pages of text explaining what's going on. That's one thing. It still should be clear, but if it is meant to stand with a large corpus of text, you've got a little more wiggle room there. If it's something you're putting out on Twitter or an app or just standing by itself, it needs to be self-explanatory. And it needs to be self-explanatory in a way which is very important here that there can only be one conclusion from the chart. (laughs) You need to be able to show it to 100 people and 95 of them all say the same thing about what it's about. Because if you have a chart that has multiple conclusions or multiple things you can draw from it that aren't really getting at the thrust we're trying to answer, it's so nonspecific as to be meaningless. So it's, it's a good thing. And, and this t- took me a long time to get right, because when you first start, you're so excited, you can do anything that isn't terrible. You put every single bell and whistle you could imagine onto the, just to show you can do it. And then over hey, the time- Hey, I you, learned GG Animate. Let's put, let's put uh, rotating GIFs in. Exactly. And that's part of the process. And it's a good part of the process. Learn how to do too much and then scale it back. That's much better than never learning how to do stuff to begin with. Because a lot of the cool things you learn are because you experiment and try, oh, this looks horrible, but this one little thing I learned actually adds a lot of value to me down the road. I, I would add, and maybe, maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, but in, in sort of a sports context and certainly in like a basketball analytics context, an NBA analytics, NBA, an NBA Twitter analytics discussion. You're dealing with a, a you, the people who are going to be engaging with that sort of visualization are already selected for a pretty high level of baseline knowledge, which means that you can, you can be even simpler and you should be even simpler in what, what is on the chart because there, you can almost assume a fair amount of, of understanding. Like you don't like, you know, if you have a chart, if you have a chart with a bunch of point guards being compared to each other, do you need to do a bunch of like explanation about what the what positions are or anything like that? As just yeah. a, like a very basic example. Yeah, I think you know, and one of the other most important things about communication, again, this is entirely sports agnostic, is understanding your audience. Um, there's really two ways to get it wrong. There's to talk down to your audience. They don't understand which means they're going to think you're an asshole, essentially. And then you can... They might do that anyway, but... Right, you can talk over people's heads, and then they don't understand and still think... Now they also think you're an asshole. So you really need to be cognizant of, like, shooting for the middle 80%, especially in a public domain like Twitter. Um, Like, the stuff I put out on the apps, 
or just in my for fun on my on my on my tw- Twitter feed is is for the middle eighty percent of the NBA statsy universe. Um, you know, there are people we know that are PhDs in math and stats and that that know way more than I do about this stuff. But targeting to that is not necessary, and also targeting my work to somebody who who found basketball reference for the first time this week. I'm not going to do that. That's not to exclude them, but it's difficult to capture everybody. So I kind of shoot for the middle 80%. Um, you're never going to be able to please everybody, but it is also important. This is a public facing work. When you do more tailored work, like for example, if you're working for a team or a company, and again, sports agnostic here, you really need to be sure of who you're speaking to with this information. Um, for example, I work in healthcare. Um, and a lot of what I do is presented to a combination of clinicians, so medical doctors treating patients, patients, and then researchers. The kind of information and the tone you would present to a researcher versus to a patient is wildly different. And for good reason, right? You're for a researcher, you can talk about mortality rates and things like that. For a patient, that's that's beyond callous. <laughs> so you don't do that. The same thing is true if you're working for a team or for sports, how you would frame a statistical communication piece for a coach or a GM or a player is going to be different. And to assume that because you, the stats genius, made it, it's going to be good no matter what is uh, arrogance. So it's really important to make sure that you are tailoring your message and your method of communicating to the audience. And in, in any field, there are going to be, as you say, there are going to be multiple levels of that. The way you present, like in a basketball context, the way you present something to, you know, you, you, can, you can look at it as, as sort of a, 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 a pyramid where the simplest is at the top. Like presenting to a player, um, I, there was a great piece in Sports Illustrated, um, which I've referenced a number of times now, about uh, uh, Bill Belichick's, um, the, uh, the approach he takes to breaking down a, a opponent plays called padding. And it's, it's a super massively detailed, nuanced thing where that breaks down every play that he then looks at and... He takes 100, 200 items from a given team and maybe comes out with two or three nuggets that he can use. Um, and that's kind of what you're presenting to players. You, you, have the, 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 you don't need the whole body of work and the scientific proofs. It's just like, you should do this on the court and maybe a little bit of here's why. And the here's yeah. why should be very general. To a coach, you go maybe a level deeper because they need to figure out how it in, in, interacts with everything else they're trying to do. Um, you know, someone who has a little bit more time to take it on and, and, and more time to make the decision and is considering a wider range of factors, such as like a, a personnel uh, decision maker, even more detail. And then obviously someone within a research or an analytics group, you're kind of, you know, you're turning the fire hose on because we're, we're, we're getting into every nook and cranny and, and making sure that we have all of our bases covered and, and, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed. Um, but finding the right level for each of those is its own challenge. Yeah. And it's not, there is no right answer. You know, it's a, it's a trial and error process. And a lot of it is based on the fact that you need to remember the, as the, you know, from statistical analysts here back to the basketball team level that, you know, I don't know as much about basketball as any player in the NBA or any coach, like obviously. So it's important to say that you aren't coming at them as a basketball, capital B expert, 
They can talk circles over me with schemes and important things and actually have doing this stuff. So it's the idea of I'm an expert at this narrow part of how to do basketball a little bit better because I wouldn't want a player or coach to spit X's and O's at me and think that I know what the hell's going on. So it's how you frame both your message and your approach because, you know, you know, if I worked for a team, I would have spent exactly a year of my life in basketball. Well, the players and coaches have spent 20, 30 years in basketball and they're dedicated their whole lives to it. So it's easy to say that not, you should just, sorry, it's difficult to realize that not only you get to tailor the method, but like the way in which you approach presenting it needs to be from an area of collaboration, not attacking. <laughs> um, and this is specifically the case with a lot of the players because you're rarely attacking the coach. You can, obviously, but in, in terms of like how to optimize who should play more, who should play less, like shot selection, things like that, if the coach is on board generally, you're probably okay. As, uh, but if, you know, if you're telling a player, hey, you're not going to play more, you're going to play less because I say this, you do need to have the why uh, prepared and ready to go in a way that makes sense. Well, and, and more to the point, like you're doing it wrong. Well, hold on a sec. I'm one of the, <laughs> I'm one of the best 200 people in the world at this and you're five foot eight. So exactly. like and there's just there's 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 just the instant disconnect there. And like, obviously, you would one one would think you would never as an analyst go to a player that way. Um, it's it's uh, another thing that, that, that I've referenced a lot recently is uh, uh, Kyle Body, who is the founder and, and owner of Driveline Baseball, which is, you know, pretty a uh, pretty groundbreaking training facility uh, just outside of Seattle. He, he had a, a tweet thread the other day talking about this kind of communication. He basically, his point about why there is sort of a, a pushback to statistical analysis, analytics, whatever you want to call it, is it's either the player, has, the, the player or executive has, been, has had a bad early experience with, as he termed it, a low-feel analyst, or they've been overly influenced by um, poor portrayals in the media. Now we can't do a lot about the second thing. That's at this point, sadly, that's sort of baked in. But we can do a lot about the first one, and a lot of that is is being just sort of like it's a weird balance because you have to be confident in what you know and what you've learned, but sort of humble in 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 where you're going to go with it. And that's yeah. a very tough balance to to to, to meet because it's, it's, it's easy to be kind of too humble and like, well, yeah, I guess I don't know. And, you know, there's all these factors I'm not considering and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, you never, then you're just, you're just a passenger along for the ride and you're not, you're not helping any more than you'd be helping if you were captain know-it-all. Right. Yeah. I think the, the important thing there, and this is something we talk about in healthcare is that there needs to be empathy in your analysis, especially if it's patient facing, or in this case, you'd be player facing is that, you know, we, we go back to the idea of a patient, you're obviously literally talking about their, how they're going to live or not. With the player, it's, it's you know... Metaphorically, decision, it's the same. Yeah, my decision might mean you are never going to work again in the only job you ever wanted and had. Yeah. And it's... so there's a pretty big responsibility to understand that I would expect there to be hostility if I told a player, well, you're minus four, therefore you're no good, so bye. Like, I'm not expecting to get your right firm handshake, walk out the door. That, that's crazy. So, A, don't talk like that. <laughs> B, understand that there's, like, you need to have empathy when you are discussing 
specifically like players as like understanding their this is affecting their career. It's not a it's a little for for analysts obviously it's a little you can feel a little bit like you're playing a video game sometimes like oh swap this player and get rid of this player trade this player and obviously the trade machine on ESPN doesn't really help that. <laughs> but um, there has to be an understanding of how your work is affecting people, even if it's great, even if your work is awesome, it's there are going to be people that are negatively affected by it. So that's something to keep in mind. And in, in a, a zero sum roster situation like the NBA, you can't avoid that, but you just can't be a jerk about it or callous. Right. Okay. So that's, we've done 20 minutes of, of very meta kind of how, how do you present data? Let's, let's get into something, some more specifics. You mentioned that you like some of the things you've built and, and I would recommend people check out uh, Andrew's apps. Um, the really interesting one that, that I kind of wanted to talk about, I think we, I, I had, I had Costa on last week and we talked plenty about Darko. So don't want to dig into that too much. I would encourage people to listen to that convo. Uh, I want to talk about uh, gravity and the concept of, of how to, conceptualize and visualize something so kind of ephemeral. Um, I know we've talked about this before a lot offline, but just, you know, briefly in late terms, you want to describe what you've done and then kind of what the implications are and what it does and doesn't do well. For sure. So I think this actually ties really well actually into your conversation with Kostya because the gravity that I envisioned is essentially, people would always say that like, oh, this guy's got shooting gravity. He's hooked this gravity around Steph, but there wasn't like a, a universally recognized definition. It's the, you know, it's the court case. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And uh, at the time there was, a, I was, uh, this was like the, the JJ Redick and Covington Sixers that were, that I was watching. And obviously those two guys had a ton of gravity in the colloquial sense of, you know, players would follow them wherever they went around the court. You are not going to ever leave JJ Redick on the three point line. Even if someone's essentially have his open dunk behind you. And so I wanted to quantify that. I thought it was interesting. How can I show that? But when we get into, and this is something actually in my communication that I believe very strongly is that getting an A++ like perfect way to do this could take years and months and data I don't have, but a B plus version of this that gets the concept across is more valuable than like a fully quantitative solve. Because that's ultimately what I wanted to see is what is the, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, And so essentially what I did was in a totally descriptive manner, so not predictive, not a model at all, essentially a a combination of a player's uh, efficiency and usage weighted by a few things across kind of all the points on on the floor. And when you do this on a plot, on a 2D plot, it looks kind of meh. But when you make it three dimensional, you can really feel what's happening and it looks like you'd expect it to look like for players. You can see what side they have bias to, what, where they pull the gravity the most. And we've talked this in the past, you know, especially with guys like Russ and Embiid to an extent, like why do they, why does anyone ever close out on those guys? It's kind of because this concept of like gravity, like if you shoot a lot, even if it doesn't go in all the time, you're going to get more respect than somebody who never shoots, but still makes them at a better rate. And so this was a kind of a fun, like lava lamp looking 3D stuff that gets the concept across without having actually a, like a solve or a quantitative solution to it. But it, it allows you to explore and, and describe what, it, what I think a representation of shooting gravity actually looks like. 
the easiest way to describe it for people who haven't seen it is uh, uh, there are there are players who not not players who have great perimeter gravity, but you know guys who are like the uh, the, the the dive and dunk big man who never does anything else. Um, if you look at their the the plots that that, that Andrew has come up for these, it basically the area around the rim looks kind of like if you've ever seen like a like a digital rendering of a black hole where there's this mm-hmm. like event horizon and then everything falls off to, and that's like that's what the rim area looks like for for those players and and from a gravity standpoint it's like yes they suck attention towards themselves at the rim um, or they I, they they should I would say because that I think gets into the other part of this is this is this isn't actually measuring in any way correct the concept of what's happening <laughs> on the floor it's like a yeah, because first off, public access data, not possible at all to do that. This is defense agnostic gravity. Right. So it doesn't really actually matter where the defense is on the court because it doesn't go into this at all. And really, when we're talking, when we're, we're talking in the colloquial terms about basketball gravity, we're, we're explicitly talking about that defensive reaction. It's not mm-hmm. the, the, play, the player doesn't have this attribute the player, the defense reacts in this, tends to react in a certain way to a player. And that's, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a hard thing to get your head around because even though, you know, we, we mostly identify it with like the, the elite shooters, which like, yeah, no, like no shit. We're, we're staying attached to Duncan Robinson's body when he's moving around the court. Um, those aren't the those aren't the really interesting cases for gravity. It's it's kind of the middling shooter. Like, does Marcus Smart have more gravity than I don't know? Pick a guy who makes threes but doesn't shoot them ever. Maybe Kyle Anderson. I don't. I haven't looked up what he's shooting this year, but like last year, yeah, he shot yeah, pretty yeah. well, but never didn't but didn't didn't shoot them at a high rate. And so I would imagine that in basket in in the play of basketball games, Marcus Smart had more perimeter gravity, even though. By any reasonable measure, Kyle Anderson was was kind of more effective uh, in, in those kind of areas as a shooter. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's not the player that has gravity. It's the, what's the defense does that is the gravity, and public data can't do it. And there's a very interesting, you know, there, as you know, there's a usage and efficiency trade off. And this kind of goes into that as well as that to what extent the next step is obviously with, with teams do this and uh, consulting groups, but the idea of if you have a lot of gravity and people sink to you or really close out to you, then you can stop shooting and get to somebody who's open. It's really the effect of like what, how do you bend the defense and what happens out of that? Having gravity is neither good nor bad in my sense because it doesn't actually tell you anything about how the offense functions. I would say it's it's I would say it's an unmitigated good, just okay. in so far as if you are someone, the the defense has to react to having more things the defense has to react to, rather than less. Um, it's hard to think of a situation where that's bad, where where giving the defense more things to think about, even if some of the things they're reacting to aren't super effective, they you're giving them more choices and they might make a mistake and somebody falls down and you get a layup. Is, yes, is having a... five having five threats is better than uh, one threat and four dudes doing nothing for sure. Well, uh, well, well, we'll we'll get to the Sixers <laughs> later, though. Um, <laughs> oh. um, 
Yeah. So, and that I think the, the last kind of before we do that, actually, the last kind of kind of data topic is how easy it is uh, is it to lose sight of that reality when you're you've you've got this you know you got this beautiful measure or model or visualization. How easy it is to lose sight of where how that does and doesn't reflect reality. Yeah, it's tough, especially when you work predominantly alone on everything, like I did until more or less Darko, um, where you're the only critic of your work and you're never as critical of your own stuff as other people are. I, <laughs> so I disagree with that statement. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> but it's, it, it, can be, it can be easy to accidentally like deceive yourself into thinking how good your thing is. And good, again, I think I've done a pretty good job describing this from the beginning as a purely like, this is a cool picture to look at. Don't don't do anything weird with that for for betting for whatever, but it's, it's a descriptive tool. And I think as long as you're realistic with your expectations or anything you make can or cannot do, it has value, right? I mean, I, I don't think that Gravity, my app, is useful for an NBA team. It's fun to look at, it's fun to explore, but it doesn't provide a lot of utility for you know Seth, the former you know the, as the the Bucks employee. That would not have been useful to you at all. Uh, how many people have yelled at you for for gambling losses or fa- or DFS losses? <laughs> None actually, because Darko does None pretty well. So, <laughs> okay. okay, so the, 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 they've been using Darko, not Gravity. Okay, yes, right. but it's the idea of like providing a a fancy, fun, interactive thing has value to fans and media members as a way to explore and learn and and just have fun with a, a cool a, a cool thing to look at, a cool thing to play around with. That has value. The problem is when you start overselling what the thing you make can do. Um, like, again, mine is not only not a model, it is essentially based on an eyeball test of what I think looks right. Because well, there is no... You're op- never going to get VC funding this way. <laughs> true. True, true, true. Not AI, ML, whatever. But, Real-time. Um, exactly. Blockchain. So many. Exactly. But it, it, it's tough because then you get excited about the work you do, and you should be. And just keep a, a realistic eye to what the what the limitations are of what you're doing. And I think that's um, actually an advantage of kind of my, my science background is that from the beginning, we're always, you know, doing research, like what are the limitations of what I'm doing? What are the problems of what I'm doing? It kind of grounds you in the sense of making sure you're not making absolutely absurd claims without any work you, you put out, hopefully. Okay. okay, so you've given me too many good possible segues. You talked about like one one player and, and some dudes. You've talked about limitations. You've talked about drawbacks. You've talked about challenges. So let's talk about your Philadelphia 76ers. Let's get into um, it. Yeah, they, uh, they, they won tonight. Um, they know, did? A stirring, They're in a nice little heater here. Yeah, a stirring win over the Orlando Magic at home, despite Mobamba um, going absolutely nuts in the first half, actually. But um, anyway, what, uh, how are you feeling? Um, distinctly medium, <laughs> although the East is so jammed at this point, you could shuffle those teams in more or less any order. And I wouldn't be surprised by the end of the end of the season. I don't have entirely faith in the goals to hold on to that one seed. I mean, essentially it comes down to if does Embiid keep playing like the, like the top three player in the league, as opposed to the top eight or nine guy, he you know, has been playing like for most of his career, which is still really awesome. Um, if he, he does, 50 tonight. That's, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if he if he keeps playing like that, the answer is like Eastern Conference Finals. If he doesn't, then it's second round, something like that. First round, second round. But um, it's such a weird team. It's always been a weird team forever. <laughs> it's never just easy. And I, obviously, you're missing a a player, <laughs> a player with uh, who's important, even if he's not. He's somehow now underrated. Um, oh, massively! I would say, like, yeah. like you know, I'm I I acknowledging all of the difficulties that that Ben Simmons has and all the challenges he presents in terms of team building and, and in-game strategy. I think he is, he is a massively underrated player right now. Like the, yeah, the, pretty the, much the only thing anyone remembers is the last, the last quarter of the playoffs right. last year when and really, the, and you know, the bus being driven forward and backwards over him by, a coach not who didn't really I well no I would like you know I a, a coach is like hey yeah, yeah. Let, 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 let's play you on the second unit with no shooters and Dwight Howard why is this not working every game like, yeah yeah no that wasn't that... great but I, I think he he's again he's such an interesting and fun player to, to, to have on a team because he's literally there's no one else like him in the NBA at all and it's cool to watch him play and it's so frustrating to watch him play poorly but he's important, and the worst case, he gives you 38 minutes of insane lockdown four-position defense a night, which is pretty good, and can certainly, in more track meet kind of games, really take some load off of uh, the Embiid. And, so it's, and also, you're not just missing a guy. Like, it's not just he's out, and so you you know, you know could have another roster spot, another player. Like, he's, he's, just, he's just not there. So you lose so much, like you're missing a, what, a twenty million dollar hole in your roster. Have do you feel like the the, the 76ers have ever really? I don't want to empowered the right word, but ever put him in anything close to even for stretches of games in in a favorable situation? Yes, once and you, only you, once. When was this? This was like two years ago when he had like that seventeen game winning streak when Embiid was out. Three years ago, at the end of again, Embiid was hurt. Now for a bit, and they were playing not great teams, but it was essentially when they had Redick and Covington and guys who could plausibly shoot three pointers. Um, and that was like the, the the fun and gun offense. The games weren't like high leverage games. Super, I don't, I don't again, I could be lost in the basketball and pandemic brain, but. Um, it's tough because the, the kind of team you would need to build to put him as the star is not the kind of like you, him and Embiid. Unfortunately, are <laughs> you can't have two guys who need the ball in their hand like hundred percent of the time and both want to score from the same place in the court the entire time. It, it's tricky, or you can, but you need to have the right other stuff around them, and that's that's in both in terms of personnel, but also also scheme. This is I was talking to Brad Rowland of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, from from Lockdown Hawks yesterday, and we were talking about the possible fit of of Simmons in Atlanta, and and you know, we, I think we we both kind of agreed on like the uh, on paper fit is interesting. The on paper fit is far less interesting when you realize that whatever you think of Nate McMillan as a coach, offensively creative is not something that comes to mind, and that would be, you know. He he would require that in any in any situation, but especially fitting him, Trey, Clint Capella in the same lineup. Okay, how how does this work? 
you need some, you, you need to get get a little weird. And I feel like yeah. that's that's been the problem uh, in Philly uh, last year. I think that whatever else you want to say about Doc Rivers, he is not especially offensive, offensively creative coach. And so Simmons was like not really operationalized for most of last year. Yeah, I think that you are dead on with you got to get weird. And I think it's interesting because Embiid is not a – he's like the best possible version of that archetype, but that's not like a a weird player. He's just really, really good. <laughs> um, but Ben would require some offensive creativity and roster-building creativity that I think is at odds with what has always been <laughs> with the Sixers in general. Um, the one thing, honestly, I was all in on the Philadelphia big boys when they were playing, like, the Horford, Simmons, like, when they went, like, five centers, essentially. I was all yeah. in on that weird experiment because that was kind of an, an idea. It was a take. I was. I thought, I thought they, I thought they were going to be, like, I thought that team was going to be historically great defensively. Yeah, I mean, it's a point of view. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like yeah. that is a, a hint of creativity. Because you can't just like roll him out as a normal point guard or whatever the heck he is, and, like expect to run all your normal stuff like that. The stuff for him doesn't exist yet, really. Right. Um, so I don't know. I, I wish they got a little more creative. I think it would be more interesting to have him be on a bad team with a young coach that had a bunch of runway <laughs> and essentially just like play around for two years and figure out what works because. The, the, the ever-looming specter in the Sixers is Embiid's clock is, is running. And his clock is running a little faster than a lot of other guys. So you so, can't burn a year and a half tootling around with funky Simmons sets at the expense of giving Embiid a shot in the playoffs. Well, let's talk about that. I think I feel like that's that argument has been trotted out a lot for why Philly has to deal Simmons this year. Has to in the next month. Has to by the trade deadline. Deal, make a deal with Simmons because you quote can't waste a year of Embiid's prime, um, and I get that. I, I get the, the the logic there, but what's the counterfactual? What's uh, uh, what, waste a year of his prime anyway? Right. <laughs> well, for, yeah. for no for for some of for, for some of for a lot of these deals that we're seeing, it seems like that. So, what's for you is like the minimum thing you would want to you think would be worth it this season this season. What, I want what, a, re- a real dribble, a, a player who can dribble and shoot the basketball that the Sixers have not had forever. <laughs> like, when was the last, like, a real actual, like, guard, like a real guard who could do all, do a little bit of everything, shoot pretty well, dribble well, penetrate, all that stuff, wasn't a disaster on defense. Since because the holiday? <laughs> like, since, since er, like, young, early career Drew Holiday, who wasn't, who probably wasn't really good yet by the time that he sort of processed out of town. Yeah, it's like there's there's like was it two years ago they had like Tobias playing shooting guard all year and I love Tobias but like that's not his that's not him and I don't know it, it is frustrating because every Sixers fan that I'm aware of has been screeching to the heavens to just get a dude who can dribble and shoot preferably one after another. Um, right. And someone someone <laughs> someone better than Shake Milton. Like I, I kind of yes. like Shake Milton, but he's not like, like he's not the he's not a, he's not the dude who does. He's, no, no. he's someone who can so he, he he can do those things, but he he's that's not 
quite at the level you're talking about. Yeah, because if you remember the last like creative offense the Sixers ran was the heavier reliance, again, not super creative, but the heavier reliance on the Reddick and the DHOs. Those were awesome, awesome, awesome plays that catered to the strengths of both guys, and they had a really good chemistry. And Reddick obviously could dribble barely. He could do it a little better than people thought, and obviously a killer shooter, but he was a defensive uh, triple minus. <laughs> but like that idea of you need a guy who can – bend the defense on the move which the Sixers haven't had uh, a long time and that's so, really the thing that I, I feel is important how close does does Tyrese Maxey come two years from now <laughs> I mean he's good okay. I, I'm a, I'm a right. big Maxey man he's not there yet I mean it, it's hard <laughs> being a young point guard is hard um, yep it's and, a tough position in the league right now yeah and he's going to be good the question is, is he going to be good enough when Embiid is 32 or, you know, you would, what, you know whatever whatever their curves is on the trend and Embiid will eventually start to decline. When does Maxi's, Maxi's, like, peak or take off, you know, kind of thing. Right. So, I don't know. I think, I think Maxi is that kind of player. I don't know if he will get there in quite the time we need, like maybe tomorrow, ideally. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But that kind of guy who's three years older. So let me throw some names out there, and you tell me if, if that's a guy who who meets oh, those conditions. Uh, <laughs> CJ McCollum. I mean, that's like the one everyone thinks about, right? He, he can literally dribble and shoot. Um, there's something funky about Portland in general. Um, and then McCollum, I don't know. I, I think that's good. But, but he, like, can, he can dribble and shoot in sort of the same way Seth Curry can. Maybe a little bit better. But. I think he's a little better. Yes, I think he's a little better. Defensively, again, is like... Because that's the thing people forget when you take a plus... You know, let's say a plus two defender in Simmons with legitimate versatility, not like the versatility people talk about. Everyone can guard one through five. He can literally guard one through four um, and put in a six-foot-two dude who guard one position poorly. That, how many more points are you gonna have to score per night right. to to get, cover that? And that's that's you know it's easy to think oh you just add well TJ scores twenty could score twenty three points a game Simmons scores fourteen so that's ten more points a game yeah but well so I don't know I think that it, it's also of, like five yeah. more shots and you're giving up what yeah so it's tough I don't know it's like kind of thing where if there was the player that was like oh this is obvious. Well, so I mean, I, I'm just like De'Aaron Fox. I would have, I like, so it, it, it so I, uh, I, I was an instructor at Sports Business Classroom at uh, Summer League in Vegas this year, and part of part of that program is uh, kind of a mock trade deadline exercise, or a, or in that case, kind of a mock off season exercise dealing, but like almost if you assume the trade deadline in the off season. Um, and that trade that was a trade that actually happened in in that in uh in that context was was the team the the group of students that were you know the brain trust of the sixers and the ones that uh, was the brain trust of the of the the kings like came up with a deal that was basically centered around fox for Simmons and that's that was kind of like the obvious one we we figured would happen um yeah, I think yeah, that I mean, deal. I think that deal looked a lot better uh, then than it would now. Yeah, oh, that's the thing. Like two at the start of the nineteen twenty season, 
I would say, in a heartbeat. Because I assumed he would have kept getting better, and he has done the opposite. Um, he's had a rough More year. or less. He's had a rough, a pretty schmedium two years. Um, where, you know, when he was really taken off and, and at the end of 1819, the start of 1920, like, like oh, this is going to be the next, like, the next dude. And it hasn't really gotten there, and his defense is not great. Has declined. Um, I think he yeah. I think he, he was a very good uh, point of attack defender when he first came in the league. And, and as can happen, as he, he's been in the league a couple of years and become more of an offensive guy, that part of his game has maybe taken a step back. And, and again, that's, that is a completely standard trajectory, I would say. Totally. The one thing that I would like with him is he's an athlete. The Sixers are devoid of that in many ways. Um, like, and having a guy who can run, like really run, and like it would be great regardless of what direction he's running in, just a fast guy. Um, that's what was obviously one of the criticisms of the, of the big boys is that you have everyone was not exactly a, a high flyer. Um, and at some point, having some nuclear athleticism just to like break stuff open every once in a while can be a, a huge help. Sure. So an, uh, sort of a very, I don't know, this, this is one that's gotten me, uh, like, like the uh, partisans of the other team have hated this one. <laughs> Jalen Brown. Oh, boy. Wow, emotionally, how would I feel about that? I, um, I mean, I feel like I'm, cli- I, I'm on some level, at least, at least the way I think about the league, I'm kind of climbing the ladder of of overall player quality. So it, it, it's almost, it's not just the player, but it's also kind of that level of player. So he's good enough. I think he's yeah. the good enough player where that makes sense. If he was, I don't really think having another, I mean, he's like not quite, the runaround guard type. I mean, he's obviously a very good player, but who you'd put him in there? What position? Like what? Like what would the Sixers' spot starting five right. look like? It's almost <laughs> like it's it's a little bit. I mean, on some level, it's a little bit like okay, is CJ McCollum better than Seth Curry? Yeah, how much better is Jalen Brown better than Tobias Harris? Con- con- taking the contract out of it, like obviously, like I think Tobias's contract is he's one of those players who's whose contract makes people think less of him as a player. Um, but, like, Jalen, Jalen Brown's better than Tobias Harris. But if you're just, like, putting him in for, for Tobias Harris, how much better is that making Philly? Some. Yeah. Over the yeah. top better? Like, he might be better enough than him, maybe. But it's, they still would feel a little short. Yeah, it, it's, it's your... You'd be replacing a similar kind of archetype with a similar kind of archetype and like a little bit of improvement at each, but then it's you spent I'm sure you crippled your cap, not that I care how Josh Harris spends his money, but um, like getting those players is is gonna take cost odds like contracts and players going out and like what do you get when you get you know your 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 essentially your team strength improves by two wins a year. And you've just gutted everything. Like, what does that get you? If you're, if you're, uh, you know, if you're a fifty-win team, getting to fifty-two doesn't do much for you. Correct. Especially so, when the only thing that matters is getting Embiid to play thirty-six a night in the playoffs. Right. Um, so, if 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 like the one dude isn't there, is there any sort of 
several dudes or a couple guys in a prospect or a pick or anything like that that would entice you? Would, uh, you know, another name that's, that's been out there a little bit recently is Jonathan Kuminga, who I don't think is ready to help them this year, but has certainly shown some flashes. Um, it could be anything. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, that plus some degree of upgrade for this year, does that do anything for you? Or is yeah. that... Sorry, go ahead. No, I think it's tough because, like, you, you want to obviously – it's not as if this season is shaping up to be a finals or bust season by any means. Um, but, like, no one seems, like, super great in the East right now. <laughs> like, you know, it's pretty tightly bunched. Um, the Sixers are playing better late because Embiid came back. Obviously, it's a very weird season for COVID reasons. Um, but it's like I would like them to take a flyer on somebody with like real athleticism or a couple people with real athleticism, make everyone just faster. <laughs> um, that sounds silly, but I, I always feel like watching the Sixers, there's so few, you know, the last couple of years, it's like, I feel like there aren't a lot of, you know, and beat aside, his athleticism is more like footwork than pure verticality. Like there aren't a lot of dudes and also around. huge man moves in directions right. he shouldn't be able to. Yeah, like tomahawk dunking, taking off from, you know, a foot inside the free throw line. Like, that doesn't happen. And having just guys who can add vertical, like vertical threats as a perimeter players, you know, as, a, as you mentioned many times, the ability to create your own shot is the most important skill. And if you have guys who can create their own shot just by getting to the rack because they're faster – that's you don't even need offensive creativity at that point. It's like, hey, you go beat your guy, and that a couple times a game is a big difference of having to like mash someone in the post for twenty seconds and hope for the best. So it sounds like you're you're on board with the if it doesn't happen by the deadline, we'll have more options to 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 do this in the off season. Um, you know, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but this has been my position is like. All right, we're, we're, if we're not going to win a title this year, there's no point in making a bad Simmons trade or a, a, an underwhelming Simmons trade just to do it. Yeah, I don't think because he's again, I don't think he'll ever play for the Sixers again. It's obviously too, I think it's too damaged at this point. Um, but somebody wants him because he's good, like he's actively good. And if his season didn't end in the way it did or at least it didn't blow up kind of publicly after the fact with all the sniping back and forth. And, you know, you, you traded, like if you offered to trade him before the last game of the season in the playoffs last year, what would the price be? He's not a different player. He just had essentially his most glaring flaws shown off for everyone to see. I mean, he's basically five seconds of game action have completely like, is all anyone sees for him now? Yeah, exactly. And and I, I, and someone will want will want him. And it's a question of, unfortunately, there's no team like the Lakers and Anthony Davis willing to you know give you everything for them. Or can I can I interest you in a in a slight in a mildly used Russell Westbrook? <sighs> no, no. <laughs> I would, like, a, like, a no. 20, like, like a twenty two year old Russ. Yeah, that'd be good. I I I, I kid. <laughs> I I, I it, like um. Um, it's the uh, I you know we we try not to do these things, but uh, there's a fair amount of I told you so from the uh, the, the community, if you will, about uh, the fate of, of of Russ on the Lakers. But that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, well, yeah, and I think right. I, just, I I upside plays on athleticism and getting weird with it. You know, be creative and be so 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 good that 
like you can, I think, afford to play around with stuff on the edges because he's going to win you games on his own. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter if you get the playoffs and he's hurt or he can't play 36 tonight they're going to lose anyway. So do what you got to do to get him there and then let the man cook, essentially. Sure. All right. I think that's enough about the unless unless you have unless you have more <laughs> more more Sixers thoughts. Um, uh, like I can scream for weeks about them, so it's probably best for your audience to cut me off here. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll we'll get you out of here with if the Sixers aren't winning the title this year, uh, who is and why? Hmm. Who's going to win? Uh, who- or, or at least like make the case for uh, a, a couple, three different teams. Well, hmm. I think the Suns would be cool. I think that would be very cool. Um, I would like the Nuggets, obviously, because Jokic, I think, is obviously one of those players that you just like to watch because he's so good. Um, it but they, would also they, be- they, they need some like they, they oh, need some things think- to happen. I don't think they're going to, but like okay. I could pick it. I mean, I think okay. the Suns would be cool. I would like the Suns yeah. if I could go. Um, the immortal one winning another, winning a chip would be uh, for pretty good. You can probably play for ten more years. But um, yeah, anyone but the Nets, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was uh, I was asked yesterday on uh, on, 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 on if you would believe in New Zealand. Uh, well, it was actually today, but it was yesterday. Because it was Wednesday morning radio in New Zealand. Anyway, time zones are weird. Uh, who I thought the finals was going to be, and I at this point, if I had to pick, I would say it's going to be a rematch. I think it's I think it's Bucks Suns again. That's you know, almost. Yeah, I, I, I trust a, the Bucks the most in the East for sure. Like obviously. <laughs> yeah, like I don't think anyone. Like I last last week, I kind of asked, "Hey, what would it take for people to believe in the Bulls?" Essentially, before the <laughs> before the Nets game, and uh, since then, um, basically the opposite of everything that's happened since then is what would it would have taken. So no one's getting like the. I don't think I don't think anyone has, you know. I think people would basically say that the Bulls making the second round of the playoffs would would be a a quality season for them. At this point, I think yes. that's the real uh, expectation. Uh, yes, I think they are a little out over their skis. Yeah, yeah, and it's gonna it's gonna not be necessarily super pretty the rest of the way. I think the Cavs too, as fun as the Cavs has been, it's too early. They especially like losing Rubio really lowers their ceiling. Um, yeah. So, um, so that kind of leaves you sort of by default with, you know. The the Sixers maybe with like like breaks and and maybe a little bit of roster help, but then kind of uh, the guys who we thought were going to be there, which is Miami, and we don't really know what Miami looks like, and Brooklyn and Milwaukee, and as you say, like um, there's probably fewer questions about Milwaukee than the other two teams. I mean, the I, one I think, aside yeah. from aside from will Brook Lopez ever play again? Or play in the season, <laughs> which is kind of a big deal. Um, maybe less of one in in how the playoffs are shaking up because, like, the team he would be most important against, I would think, is Philly. But if Philly is ultimately not really a threat, then okay, Embiid could score forty a game, and the Bucks could still win that series comfortably. I think that would be kind of if you know 
I think that might be how that would play out. <laughs> Embiid would have a historic series, and they'd lose in six games. <laughs> yeah. So that yeah, that's I guess where I am. Um, anything else you want to uh, you want to touch on? Any any, any burning hot takes you have? Uh, any uh, it, uh, stat or otherwise about the NBA this year? Um, not particularly. I do think that uh, there's been some cool um, – some of the rookies this year have, have been pretty fun to watch, which has been cool. Um, more so than I feel like I thought they would be. And then obviously some of the guys have had you know really good improvements over the course of the year of note, which I think are – Fun to fun to always keep track on. Um, you know, Garland has been a really good story, um, which I think is cool. You know, he was some people almost wrote him off already, but he's had a really fun year, and he's he turning out to be like could be again one of those one of those guys over the next couple of years to really kind of own the East as the as the current crop plateaus a bit. It's a very a very strong uh, argument for for not worrying about fit when you're drafting. Yeah. Oh, oh, we already have Colin Sexton. We can't pick this guy. Well, <laughs> like, if both of them turn out to be really good, that's a good problem to have. But most like, like the most like, like the like the the, the modal outcome is neither would 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 be good. Yes, and, having good players is yeah. good regardless of what they do. Yeah. Um. So you you mentioned rookies. So I guess last question for you is, um, you know, this is sort of a, a question: how much how quickly do you revise your opinion of you know something like i, I don't know whether you had kate cunningham or, or evan mobley uh, higher pre-draft um but how much of what you've seen this year would cause you to revise that and how strongly would you would you believe one way or the other at this point that's a really tough hard question um i would say that mobley's been been good not just like Rookie good, but like pretty good as an NBA player, um, which is cool to see. Um, and I was extremely unusual. Like I, we can't overstate the degree to which a rookie being positively impactful on a good team is how unusual that is. Yeah, and, and I was higher on Cade coming out because I think when in doubt, don't pick the big guy. Um, despite Embiid and Jokic, like it's just harder to be awesome, awesome, awesome as a big guy than to be even just really good as a perimeter player and more, more value that adds. Um, but I think, you know, I, I don't like getting rid of guys too early or selling them too early because, I mean, I, I've spent enough time in actual athletic development um, for many years, like coaching athletes, hands-on, strength stuff, conditioning stuff, and, and talent and skills coaching, excuse me, that, you know, it, it takes time, and it's easy to forget that because these guys look the way they do and get paid the way they do that they are twenty. Right. And there's so much, um, so much physical, mental, personal growth that can happen um, that it's a little early to you know to write guys off again. I mean, look at Garland; people were writing him off pretty quickly. Um, I feel like, and I, know, I think it's early. Obviously, Mobley is like a revelation. Um, I'm a little surprised by how. Not not good. Kate has been at times, but that team is kind of weird, and it's always you know very very difficult to isolate a player's quality from the kind of a weird situation. Right, and you take plus you know not 
we we can we can special plead all we want, but you know, a rookie who doesn't get a training camp because of an injury is we kind of saw his training camp in his first couple NBA games, and it looked as ugly as the first couple of days of training camp look for guys who are <laughs> who are who are just showing up in the NBA for the first time. Yeah, um, I, I think he probably won't. He's not going to be. I think it's probably safe that he won't reach the insane peak some people thought he would because I think those players usually pop immediately. Um, but I think if you, there's plenty of time for him to become a very good or even excellent NBA player. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, I do think that's overstated to a degree. I think if he had been actively bad this year, that's, that takes some of those top end uh, 10 outcomes off the table. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's less likely for him having just been okay rather than him being great out of the gate. But I think that- this is actually one where I, re- I rely on, on Darko a little bit is where the, his trends are not like you can pretty quickly pick up on guys who tend to reach super high peaks and it hasn't. And that to me is telling. Well, we can, we can argue, about over, <laughs> we can argue about overfitting on small samples later, but we uh, can. <laughs> uh, um, also, I think I think probably like I, you, you brought it up, and I and I had completely forgot about this when I was going to have you on about your your sort of training and skills development background. I think probably have to have you back on in the off season to uh, to to talk about player development and kind of a scientific approach to player development because that's a qu- sorry uh, scare quoted scientific approach to to, yes. to uh, player development uh, because that's a that's a fascinating topic that. Um, like kind of nobody knows nothing about. And I think that the NBA is certainly well behind uh, baseball, at least in that regard. And, and NFL as well. I mean, it, the NBA was behind most like NFL for sure. Baseball for sure. Cause it, this is the case when we can talk later, but any sport that is predominantly skill based is going to be lower on the, the uptake of that And the super easy example is golf. Um, everyone looked like bags of mashed potatoes until Tiger came along. And now fewer of the guys look like bags of mashed potatoes, right? <laughs> so there's, because the skill is the, still the dominating thing, but the ability to, to, to improve, you know, physical skills trans and translate into on court skills. So we can talk about for obviously a different time, but it's uh, basketball has really come into, especially on the high school and college side has really done a much better job in the last, you know, eight, 10 years preparing guys. Well, cool. That's, that is a tease for a uh, future episode. Uh, Andrew, uh, th- thanks a lot, a lot for coming on. Always, uh, always a good time chatting with you and uh, appreciate you taking some time out of your, your uh, Wednesday night to, uh, to give us some of your thoughts. My pleasures. Uh, thanks as always, Seth.